Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. There's a grandparent who's talking with their grandchild and they say in life there's two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love. And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the grandchild stops and they think about it for a second and they look up at their grandparent and they say, well, which one wins? And the grandparent says, the one you feed. Hi, my name is Mark Groves and I'm obsessed with understanding human behavior and why we do what we do. In this podcast, I interview the world's most brilliant minds and hearts where I get to explore alongside you every subject you can imagine relating to our human experience and how we relate. It is my deepest intention that we all learn how to create the life and love that we've always dreamt of. Now, before we get rolling, make sure you hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any episodes. And one ask that I have, and an amazing way that you can help support the podcast is by wherever you listen to it, giving it a five-star review and a written review. With all that said, let's dive in and transform our lives. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mark Groves Podcast. Today, I am joined by Eric Zimmer, who is a behavior coach, a certified interface spiritual director, creator of the Spiritual Habits Program, and host of the very acclaimed podcast, The One You Feed. Welcome, Eric. Thanks for having me, Mark. Can you share a bit of how you came up with that title? And then I'd love to dive into the Zen practices that you invite people yeah. to move towards? Yeah, I mean, my podcast is called The One You Feed and is not a show about social media feeds or food. Um, <laughs> it's based on an old parable. We don't really know where the parable comes from. Some people insist it's a Native American parable. Other people insist it's not. I, no scholar can answer the question for me in any sort of convincing way, so I simply don't attribute it. But it goes like this. There's a grandparent who's talking with their grandchild, and they say, in life, there's two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love. And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the grandchild stops and they think about it for a second and they look up at their grandparent and they say, well, which one wins? And the grandparent says, the one you feed. Hmm. I don't know where I got the idea, but I was like, I could just do an interview show and that could be the first question I ask of every guest, what that means to them as a sort of a jumping off point. And so that's kind of what what it's become. I mean, that story has meant more or less to me over the years, and there are different ways I could unpack it and take it apart, you know, based on my different understandings at different points in life. But when I first heard it was early in recovery, and it was abundantly clear to me how true that was. Mm -hmm. You know, I wasn't even feeding the bad wolf anymore. I joke that I think the bad wolf was eating me at that point, right? Mm. But when you hear the parable, that's the great thing about parables is you hear them and you immediately understand a lot of what they're trying to convey, which is our choices matter. Our choices about what we think about, what we do, they have they have an impact on our lives. Yeah, when you created the spiritual habits program, like what are spiritual habits? When I talked about having to re 
understand what spirituality meant for me as part of my recovery, where I ultimately landed was this idea that if I were to live my life by certain spiritual principles, we could also probably call them philosophical principles, Mm -hmm. right? But if I was to live my life by those things, that I would ultimately be able to handle whatever life brought me. That turned out to be a bedrock that I could build the rest of my life on. However, what many of us know is that there's lots of things that we might believe, or when we read an article on them, or when we hear Mark talk about them on his podcast, we go, oh yeah, that's, boy, that's true, that's really good. But we don't have any idea how to live it. Mm. So for me, spiritual habits is a way in which I took some foundational spiritual philosophical principles that I see show up in all our different wisdom traditions and philosophical traditions that seem to me core to what it means to live a good life. And then I use the science of behavior change. How do we actually change? And I put those two together so that we can live more of these principles in our lives instead of them being something we believe in or read about they actually become something we live more. So that's what the Spiritual Habits Program is. So what are some of the ways that we merge those two? Like, first off, I mean, I think we'd all like to know, how do you change your behavior? And then how do these practices, maybe, would they complement it or are they actually part of that strategy? Well, depends on on how you apply it. I mean, there's been a lot written over the last decade about behavior change, whether it be James Clear's Atomic Habits being an example. There's a robust science out there about how people change and what causes them to change and why they don't change. And But most of that has been applied to things like working out every day Mm -hmm. or being more productive at work, which are perfectly fine goals. I'm 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 not saying there's anything wrong with any of those goals. I just wanted to apply it to optimizing wisdom. You know, so how do we change behavior? That's a We could do three podcast episodes on that, right? And everybody's different and what their challenges are. But, But fundamentally, there are some things we know that tend to work. I mean, the first is you've just got to be clear about why you're changing. Like, what are you changing and why? You know, being specific. We're often very vague in our intentions, you know, but specificity. Why am I doing this? You know, what what are the reasons? I mean, so that's a foundational piece of it, right? Another is, do we have the skills to do the thing, right? Like I might say I would like to run a 10K, but if I go out tomorrow and try and run a 10K, I'm probably, it's not going to go well um, if I'm not a runner, right? I don't have that skill, but I do have the skill to run maybe, or to maybe walk for 15 minutes tomorrow right? So where do we start? What's our level of ability and where do we start and calibrating that and tuning that to our actual lives, right? Because my life might look very different and and what I have the ability to do and commit to very different than a single mother of five children who are all, you know, elementary school aged, right? I have, I have, I have time that she simply does not have. Mm -hmm. So for me to give her a program without factoring that in, that's what a lot of the the stuff about habits seems to miss is that context really matters. Another really important point, and it seems simple, but it's not, is remembering. We simply just get busy and we forget. Maybe many people listening to this show have gotten to the point where they have a daily meditation practice. They've Mm -hmm. just decided that that's important and they do it. And that is, that's pretty impressive because a lot of people can't get there. And my guess would be many, many people who have got that would say, 10 minutes after it's over, it's like it didn't happen because I just get caught up in <laughs> so my day true. and I don't think about any of that crap again until the next morning. Right. Right. So remembering. So there's a there's a lot of science out there about triggers. What helps us remember? Not trigger in the negative sense of the word, although triggers can be negative. They can also be positive. But if we think of them as something that prompts us to do something, we can structure our lives with triggers that will allow us to remember, reflect, and do what we want to do. So really the program it, for me is saying, you know, how can we look at the behavior change piece of this? What am I going to do? When am I going to do it? How am I going to do it? What's my context? How am I going to remember to do it? I mean, I'll give you a really simple example, right? Like one, one of the things many of us want is to be more present, right? That's just something that we could probably all say, yeah, being more present would be, is a good thing. I believe in that. That seems, I can see why that would be 
foundational in my life. Yeah. And we occasionally think about it and we go, all right, I'm going to be present. And then we're there for about a half a second and we're gone. And then we don't <laughs> think about it for three days till we read another, you know, mind body green article that tells us <laughs> the benefit of being present. Right. On the other hand, if we're a lot more specific and we say, for example, I'm going to do a mini behavior. And that behavior is I'm simply going to ground myself in my senses. I'm going to just say, what are five things I can see right now? What are five things that I can hear right now? What are five things I can feel in my body? Or five, four, three, it doesn't matter, right? That's my mini behavior. If I do that, it actually gives me a way to be present for more than a second. Not a whole lot longer, but while I'm doing that, I'm actually going to be paying attention to the world around me. Mm -hmm. Now, if I use triggers to do that regularly, I now will be weaving presence throughout my day. So for example, I used to have a, back when I still, before I did the podcast full time and I worked in an office, every time I would go from my car to work or from work to my car, I would do that exercise. And that turned out to be four times a day when I arrived in the morning, when I left for lunch, when I came back at lunch and when I left in the evening. So four times a day, I did this little grounding in my senses exercise. Hmm, that's smart. No one of those is revolutionary or life-changing. Matter of fact, one of them is kind of irrelevant. I mean, it's nice that you were present for three seconds. <laughs> but the core of the spiritual habits program is this idea that little by little, a little becomes a lot. Mm. So by doing that four times a day, five days a week, week after week after month after month, right? All of a sudden, presence is a whole lot more accessible to me. And so we can take these sort of what I like to think of as I call them still points. Mm -hmm. We can create these still points. If we can create an architecture that drops all these still points into our day, then we can put whatever we want into that still point. So for example, let's say I'm like, what I want is to be more patient with my children. Okay. How can I embed still points in my day that when the still point comes, I reflect on if I'm with my children, am I being patient or not? And if I'm not with my children, maybe I just remember why being patient is important to me. It keeps it front of mind. I'm a whole lot more likely to be patient with my children if I had a still point 25 minutes before that reminded me that was important than it's something I thought three nights ago as I was going to bed. So it's this way of creating what I like to think of sort of an architecture within our lives that we can hang all these sort of mini behaviors on so that we're more likely to do them or reflections or, and that again, little by little, a little becomes a lot. These things over time transform us. I know you love to study habits and behavior patterns. I'm curious, is there certain things that you think everyone needs who's embarking on change? I mean, I think most of us are trying to change something at some time, yeah. probably all, all the time. Probably one thing we've always wanted to change and we keep chasing. So maybe we can get into why we chase things and never change them. And then what are the habits that that are necessary? Yeah. Again, the, the, this is a big topic. Um, yeah. And I will have to speak in somewhat generalities because people are different, right? There's yeah. a quote I love from the Buddhist teacher, Ajahn Chah, and he says, uh, someone asked him, like, why do you tell one student one thing and another student something else? He's like, look, if I see somebody walking down the road and they're on the far right and they're about to fall in a ditch, I yell, go left, go left. If I see someone else who's on the far left of the road about to fall in the ditch on the left, I yell, go right, go right. Right. So, so we're going to need different <laughs> things and depending on what we're trying to change, right? Like building a daily meditation habit is a whole different thing than giving up heroin. Right. Right. These are, these are different, different things, but there are some things that I think are broadly speaking, good rules. And, and we touched on them a little bit. I mean, the first is what am I doing and why, and what are my competing priorities? Mm, what am I doing and why, and what are my competing priorities? That seems like an uncomfortable yeah. question. Well, it's a totally uncomfortable question, but it's a critical one because that is we often are of two minds, right? I want to eat healthy, but I also really like eating ice cream while I watch TV with my partner in the evening, right? right. Those are competing priorities. We've got to call out that ambivalence, mm -hmm. I think, 
right? We've got to sort of take it head on and we've got to say, okay, well, which is more important and, and what is driving that, that one? It's like the same, you know, if we look at getting sober, right? There's a point where to pretend that I'm not having strong and serious cravings to use is a mistake. They're there. So what, why, what's going on? What else might I be able to do? So there's real clarity on why and what my competing priorities. The next thing I would say is generally specificity is your friend. There's a world of difference between I want to get in better shape. Mm -hmm. You can move that to I'm going to get in better shape by running. Okay, better. I'm going to get in better shape by running Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. We're, now we're really getting there. I'm going to get in better shape by running Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 9 a.m. And even better to be like, and I'm going to do it at the local park near me. Because every bit of ambiguity is an opportunity for us to procrastinate. It's an opportunity for us not to do it. Everything I've got to figure out makes it more is energy that I could be putting into doing it, into figuring out when I'm going to do it or what I'm going to do, right? Meditation at times for me is really challenging. And the reason it's really challenging is I know about 50 different ways to do it. <laughs> it's so true. Right? So I, I'm like, well, what am I going to do? Am I going to do a guided meditation? Am I going to sit? Okay, if I'm going to just sit by myself, am I going to just do breath practice? Or oh God, do I want to open awareness? Or now, you know, maybe I should work on that koan I was working on with a Zen teacher, right? All that just is, is a way that often I won't even get to it. Or I'll spend the entire meditation trying to figure out what I'm doing, right? <laughs> we all have our versions of this, right? And so specificity is our friend. But this is where context is really important because if your life is really chaotic, you're only going to be able to get so specific. Meaning you might mm -hmm. say, I want to meditate every morning at uh, 7.15 and that's my plan. But three days a week at 7.15, the world blows up because some child needs something you didn't expect. Right. So for people like that, we have to have what I would, you know, we have to be very flexible and adaptable. But in general, if we can be specific and we have a plan and a schedule, that's better. And then another one for me that's really critical to staying with habits is, you know, I say a little bit of something is better than a lot of nothing, right? So I plan to go to the gym for an hour after work and my, at five minutes before I was going to leave, my boss comes walking in and says, I need to talk with you for something. And we talk for 20 minutes and now I only have 35 minutes to exercise. Many, many of us are going to go, forget it. Just don't do it. Mm -hmm. It's way better that we do something because that helps keep the habit alive. You know, all right, I can't, uh, you know, it doesn't make sense for me to drive to the gym and then drive home when I've only got 20 minutes while I'm going to be there. So you know what? Uh, I'm just going to walk for the next 20 minutes and do 20 push-ups. Right, a little bit of something is better than nothing. It keeps the habit alive, and and you might find if you look at yourself, like what kind of person am I? Do I have do I have a very difficult time getting started? Some people are this way; they just can't get started, or I can't keep going. Those are the, we're going to apply different solutions to those different problems, right? In starting, we often want the specificity. We want to start really small. We want to do that. If it's keeping going, then we need to focus on flexibility because most people's lives are chaotic enough that you're just not, life is going to interrupt your plans. I'm going to meditate every morning, except, you know, two days this week, one day I had a doctor's appointment and the other day I had to take my dog to the vet. Okay, well now what do I do? Right? Mm -hmm. So my life is chaotic enough and I don't even have, my, my son has grown. My life is chaotic enough, right, with travel and all kinds of different things that I need to have a certain blend of like, here's the plan, here's what I'm going to do when there's no exception, but here's what I'm going to do when there isn't. For a long That's time, you know, a lot of people I work with travel and they're like, when I'm home, I'm pretty good. But when I travel, it all goes to hell. And I travel often enough that it's just all, all you know, <laughs> going to hell, right? So I, this was me for a long time, near later parts of my career. I traveled a lot for work. And I had to get to a point where I was like, okay, this is my at-home set of habits. This is my travel set of mm, habits. That's smart. Right? They've got to be very different. Because it's just not working to try and do what I do at home when I'm traveling. 
it's just things are different. I need to, I need to adjust for that. I have less time when I'm traveling. I'm, you know, depending on the nature of what I'm doing and, and, and all of that. So, so again, I would say that those things, you know, clarity on what we want to do, clarity on how we're going to do it, getting specific, remembering, being triggered, and then giving ourselves the right level of flexibility. You know, I think to create a long-term behavior takes a certain amount of rigidity and stubbornness and a certain amount of flexibility. The rigidity and stubbornness is I'm going to do this. Movement is important to me. I'm going to move every day that I can. I'm really committed to that. How that shows up often has to look very different depending on what's going on. My mom was just in the hospital for six weeks. Like my life looked very different during that window. If I had been like, oh, I'm going to keep doing my practices the way I do them, I wouldn't have done anything, right? So I was like, okay, that's not going to work. Now I need to be flexible. All right, mom, I'm going to, I'll see you in a little bit. I'm going to walk around the hospital for 25 minutes. Is it as good as getting on my Peloton bike? Of course not. Right. But it's better than nothing. This episode was brought to you by The Wellness Company. Now you guys know I'm all about standing in the truth of what matters to me. And when it comes to my health and my family's health, I am very careful who I take advice from. Trust and transparency are so important to me, especially now that I'm a new dad. Now The Wellness Company was formed by a team of doctors who lost their jobs and they were subsequently canceled, censored, for speaking up and pushing back against the mismanagement of the pandemic. As a native Canadian and former pharmaceutical rep, I am all too familiar with the failings of the current system, and it is pretty clear that we need some sort of massive change. Now, not only does the wellness company offer live telemedicine services, but they also have a wide range of high-quality doctor-formulated supplements that are designed to, one, degrade the spike protein and protect you from shedding, boost your immune system, support your heart health, help you sleep better, and there's so many more. They recently just launched the Spike Support Formula. Now, it's the only product I've seen that contains a unique combination of natural ingredients, including natokinase and dandelion root extract. Natokinase has been shown to help break down and eliminate the spike protein, and dandelion root blocks it from binding to your cells. To support those experiencing side effects from the shots and to help those suffering from long COVID and to protect you from shedding, the Spike Support is one supplement that everyone can benefit from in this post-pandemic world. The truth is that we all need to be taking steps to protect ourselves from that toxic spike protein. Get yourself the wellness company's spike support formula now. You can go to twc.health/groves and use the code groves at checkout to save 15% off. So that's twc.health/groves to save 15%. Is there a truth to the 21 days to build a habit? Like is that a no, I just oh, Absolutely not. So how does it, I mean, God, it's such a catchy myth. It's like seven minute apps or something, you know. Oh, it sounds great, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. I just got to do this for 21 days. What is the sort of sticky point of the of where we've rewired our behavior? There's too many variables, right? What is the nature of the habit, right? Brushing your teeth is a far ha easier habit to figure out than working out for an hour a day. They yeah. just take radically different amounts of commitment and time. And again, context matters. What we know from the research is what we would consider a habit, which is a thing that happens almost automatically, takes a stable context. Takes a right? stable context. What do you mean by and that? And context is what's going on in your life. Ah, uh, okay. Right? So for most of us, we go to bed every night. There's a stable enough context for brushing our teeth. Hmm. Now, if you're a 24-hour party animal, my guess is you have more trouble brushing your teeth than I do, right? Because you're rolling in at all different hours. and but So it, it really depends on a, a stable context. For most of these more complex behaviors we want to build, we may never build a habit in the strict sense of the word, in that it happens automatically no matter what. That said, as somebody who has tried to move my body six days a week and has been pretty successful at that for a decade, it takes a whole lot less effort for me than it does somebody who's trying to start that habit mm. or that, right? So there is momentum. It's certainly easier for me, but it still can be a challenge given that my schedule changes and my, you know, I didn't sleep well the night before. And I'm like, do I need more sleep or do I need to be on the bike? Do I? So most of us aren't going to build with these more complex behaviors, strictly what researchers would call a habit. 
but we can build something that has a lot of momentum behind it, right? And that's, I think, what what we're after. And it just it everybody's different on how long that that takes, you know. So the the twenty one days to build a habit is a myth, but it points to a truth, which is, yeah, the more often you do something, it's kind of like you know, I, I often think of karma as just like everything I do makes it more or less likely I'm going to do something different in the future. This is the same thing, right? The fact that I have been moving my body six days a week or seven days a week, depending for a long time means that I'm way more likely to do it than somebody's been incredibly sporadic. You know, for me with these things that I'm trying to do every day, I'm kind of aiming for like 90% success. You know, like I want to meditate every day. If I can meditate 90% of the days, over a long period of time, that's perfectly good. Like that will transform you. Anything else feels like it might um, cause you suffering because you miss it. And then there's like this element of perfection. Is that, is that true? Totally. There are a lot of people who are, if I can't do it perfect, I just won't do it. We get discouraged by our failures. There's a BJ Fogg, who's a Stanford uh, professor, came up with a phrase that I really like, and I think it's really true. He said, we change better by feeling good than feeling bad. What that means mm, is that's feeling good. bad about ourselves, I mean, it can lead to change, but it's not a very sustainable change. Feeling good about the person we're becoming is a lot better. And we know, if you just think about it, like, our motivation goes up when we feel optimistic, when we feel confident, when we feel like we can do what we need to do. And motivation goes down when we feel like, I don't know if I can do this. And God, I kind of suck at doing it. Like, right. You could just feel that in yourself. Right. And so that's why setting the right standard to sort of measure by can be really, really helpful. And to start small enough in the beginning that you can succeed because success builds on itself. And failure builds on itself, right? Mm. And so I'd much rather have somebody be like, you know what, I'm going to exercise three days a week and do it three days a week. than somebody else who says, I'm going to do it five days a week, but only does that part of the time. Even though at the end of the day, the person who's doing five and not hitting all of them after two weeks may have gotten more days of exercise in. But I can, I think that the per, my experience has been the person who does it three days a week and is successful and feels good about themselves has a platform to build from. The person who is trying to aim at five and not getting there. Now, again, it depends on the kind of person. Some people are like, look, I'm doing the best I can get, you know, fine, just keep going, right? But most people will be like, I'm not doing good. I suck. I'm not good at this, right? They're not going to feel good. And we tend to stop doing things that we don't feel like we're good at we tend to stop doing things that we feel like we're failing at on a regular basis. Yeah, if I keep bringing shame, if I'm experiencing shame because I'm not keeping my word to myself, like I could imagine that would unconsciously cause a lot of disruption for people. Absolutely, yep, 100%. When you look at all, because you've worked with so many people and obviously groups of people and all that kind of stuff, I know you said that there's two reasons, one we fail to start and the other one we fail to maintain for the people who do start and then don't maintain, I know you talked a bit about like why that is. I'm curious, like, is there something that you see as a common, like a, because I know, of course, we're speaking to a lot of people, but is there something that you see as a common, you know, reason that we don't continue? Because, man, I think about the things I've successfully changed versus the things, you know, that fell by the wayside. And the things I successfully changed, I found that I like tapped into something that mattered to me, that really mattered to me. Maybe in the times that I, let's say, quote unquote, relapsed, there was at least like a, a little chink that I was like, oh, I still had some undone work that now is clear to me and okay. And I forget what uh, change model that is, but it's like a spiral. So when every time you relapse, you actually grow. And I love that because isn't that really the truth? Well, I think you just hit on a pretty important part of that, which is we got to learn from why, what happened. And this is why moving away from shame is so important. You know, I do a lot less one-on-one -on -one coaching work with people than I used to. But one of the things that I would really drive home to clients is like, we have got to move away from seeing your inability to change your behavior as a personal flaw. Mm. or a moral failing, or a I'm just the kind of person who, and we have to treat it more like a puzzle. 
why are you not able to change? And shame stops us from looking. Shame just shuts down investigation. So we need to jettison that and go, what isn't working? Okay, I was doing fine and now I'm not. Why? Probably the most common, if I had to name one. Well, actually, I'll give you a couple most common. One is that, like I said, we're going along well because life is kind of normal and stable. And then just something happens that throws our whole life into balance and we get off track. And that causes us to feel bad about ourselves and we just stop. I think of like, we are always getting off track. Yeah. The question is, how long are we off track? So I say plan for the fact that you're going to get off track. James Clear has a rule. He calls it never miss twice. Now, I don't think that, mm. that I think that might be unrealistic in, in a lot of cases, but it points to, look, you're going to miss. You're not going to do it. How can you get back to it as quickly as possible with minimal drama, right? Don't fall into the, I, I knew I couldn't keep doing it. Like I've tried so many times to exercise and I always give up and I always like, can we just let all that go? And go, oh, I didn't do it yesterday. Why? Oh, it's because when I don't sleep well, I don't feel like I have the energy in the morning. Okay, well, let's now let's dig into that. How, how might we work with that? Oh, it's because, you know, some, some of my clients, it would be like, they're just terrible at planning and scheduling. You know, they'd be like, well, I thought I was going to be free, but then I, you know, had this hat and I'm like, okay, like your problem isn't that you, that you're unmotivated. Your problem isn't that you are lazy. Your problem is that you can't manage your schedule at all. Like we've just got to figure out how you can plan in a way that's more effective. Other people will find that it's more of an emotional regulation problem. They get to time to do the thing and something inside of them stops them. Okay, well, that's a completely different problem to solve. But I would say that, you know, the, the two most common are getting discouraged and the fact that life will change on you. So many people will be like, I was doing great till I went on vacation. And then on vacation, I stopped doing it, which is fine. And when I came back, it's just like, I never really, I kept saying tomorrow, I'll get back to it. Tomorrow, I'll get back to it. Now it's three months later. Let me tell you, as a new father, what's become abundantly clear is how important restful sleep is <laughs> for me. Not just to be present to life, to Jasper, to Kai, to my work, to creativity, but just so I can feel at my best. And I've been using this new product called the Hatch Restore 2, and it's this beautifully designed little unit that sits on your bedside table or wherever you want to put it. And it trains your body when it's time to sleep and when it's time to rise. And it uses light and sound cues. And it coaches you through meditations and mindfulness exercises. And what they do is they transform the time before and after sleep into these restful rituals. And I notice a difference in my resting heart rate when I sleep, my HRV. So with the Hatch Restore 2, you sleep deeply with this pink, white, or brown noise and other sleep sounds that are inspired by nature. So no more jarring alarms, like we know that feeling, right? When it wakes you up immediately. This wakes you up over time with this sunrise alarm clock. So it supports your natural circadian rhythm. I have absolutely loved this. I can't recommend it enough. And listen, we all know great sleep can't be forced, but it can be learned. The Hatch Restore 2 can allow you to learn how to do that. So right now, Hatch is offering you, my listeners, $20 off the purchase of a Hatch Restore 2 and free shipping. All you got to do is go to hatch.co slash markgrove. So H-A-T-C-H dot C-O slash M-A-R-K-G-R-O-V-E-S. So hey, there's nothing I want more for you than to sleep deeply and wake gently. It's a real nice feeling and get $20 off and free shipping. So go to hatch.co slash markgroves. It's amazing how easy something can derail us. But when you talked about, you know, you've been working out six days a week for, you know, however many years, that it's your normal to be in that habit. So when you're not, it's now yeah. the absence of it is actually abnormal. Totally. Which, man, if we can, I find for something like exercise, for example, if I don't do it in the morning, I find I'm chasing it. And so... You know, it's mm. like I have to get it done early. And then having a five-month-old, which has been challenging to the morning because sure. sometimes he's up at freaking 5.15, other days he's up at 6.45. And 
Yep. Like if I don't get up before mom and baby, like that's not that's not likely gonna happen. Yeah. Kids are a a dramatic influencer of all that stuff, you know? I think another thing is important is just recognizing what season of life are you in. Yeah. Our goals that we should take on or the size of behaviors that we want to take on or the things we want to accomplish, I think we have to we have to take them in context of everything else that's happening in life. You know, we don't often tend to do that. We tend to sort of set a goal kind of out on its own without really thinking about how it, how everything else around it impacts it. Yeah. You know, so back to context again, you know, how does this stuff fit into context? You speak a lot and I'm sure you get asked to do a lot of things. I'm just giving an example of what I mean by this is that, you know, I will get asked to do something. And if I'm not careful, what I will do is look at whether I want to do the thing I'm being asked to do. And that's all I'll think about. And I'll be like, hell yeah, I want to do that. That sounds great. I got invited recently to go moderate a conference for legislators about the opioid epidemic. Do I want to do that? I do, yes. But I have to then say, hang on, what do those four days in October actually look like? What are my other commitments? What else have I said yes to, right? I can't just think about it on its own. On its own, it sounds like a great opportunity. In context, it might be a really bad idea. And we tend to do many things in life out of context. So it's back to this idea of the structure and shape of our lives really do matter. And we have to be skillful in what we're trying to take on. Because again, we want to succeed because success is going to breed more success. How do you balance though that like if we're someone who runs from challenge or like change is going to bring up stuff for us, right? Because like, you know, it's a new version of us is being birthed, which means another version of us is dying. I think humans are experts at creating bullshit idea, you know, bullshit reasons. (laughs) Bullshit's probably the wrong term. It's a little lacking a bit of compassion, but like we we're masters at coming up with reasoning to not do something that's uncomfortable, that's going to bring us, even though it might bring us the best life, the best relationships, the best everything. Mm-hmm. There's like, we know that, but it's unfamiliar. So we don't want to do something unfamiliar. I'd rather, you know, still do yep. the thing that brings familiarity and blah, blah, blah. So how do you balance what you're saying, which I really love and is providing compassion and flexibility and all that to like, sometimes we need a little rigid. You did say we needed rigidity and flexibility. Yeah. So yeah, how do because I feel like a lot of, may, I'm projecting here because I'm a bullshitter. So I'll uh, come up with, I got, I'm a master. So I'm like, how do people like me, which if you're listening and you're like, oh, I'm good at that too. How do we get called out? Because I feel like someone who's like, oh, you're good. You're fine. I'd be like, yeah, I <laughs> got him. I mean, I think there's a couple different levels we could answer this question. Yeah. One of them would be when you asked about key principles of behavior change, I missed one, right? And it's support. Uh we are way more likely to do something if we're doing it with someone, right? Or if someone else is at least paying attention to whether we do it, right? Sometimes I think with the one-on-one coaching work that I did, there were times where I feel like 50% of the value I provided was that I was somebody they had to sort of report to. Mm. For some people, that's really important. Agreed. Now, other people, it doesn't make any difference. They don't give, I mean, it's like, they'll tell me, no, I didn't do it a hundred times. They don't care, right? But for many people, that support and and how that support looks and that accountability looks different and different people are going to be different, but we're way more likely to make a change if we are being supported in that change or we are doing that change with someone else. That's a big one. I mean, your your other question is a deeper one, which is like, how do we stop self-deceiving ourselves? Yeah. Good God. I mean, I don't I don't know that I've got a <laughs> a short answer to one of life's most vexing problems. But some of it does go back to competing commitments, right? It is like, I say I want to change, Mm. but in what ways am I invested in not changing? What's it going to feel like when I say, you know what, I want to stop spending two hours on TikTok in the evening. And yet I'm invested. There's a reason I'm spending two hours on TikTok in the evenings. What is that reason? What am I getting? How invested am I in changing? And then there's just a certain matter of, you know, we have to how do we become honest with ourselves? This mm-hmm. is one of the hardest things. Particularly, I've worked with a lot of people who are, let's say they have severe depression, 
or they have chronic pain, or they have some other thing that makes it really hard to know, am I just giving myself an excuse and an out? Or do I need to be compassionate towards myself that this is the best I can do? Those are very difficult to sort out. And ultimately, as a coach, all I could do was ask that person questions. Only they can know. I can't decide, like, was your pain bad enough today that you shouldn't work out or Mm -hmm. not? Only you can know that. I can ask you questions. I can push you to be honest. But if, and this is back to that, you know, if somebody's going off the ditch to the right, you know, push them to the left. They're going off to the left, push them to the right. Because what some clients I found what they needed was a little bit, I needed to put the, you know, put the screws to it just a little bit more. You can do better than this. Mm -hmm. I think maybe you might be not telling yourself the whole truth. Mm -hmm. There are other people who are so hard on themselves that what they need from me is, it's okay. The model that like more compassionate. Yeah. And so knowing you know, to apply this to ourselves, what kind of person am I? Am I a person who tends to let myself off the hook too easily? Well, then maybe I at least want to contemplate that that's what I'm doing again, because that's what I tend to do. Am I a person who just berates myself for any little mistake? If so, what I might want to do is be like, you know what, you didn't work out today. It's not a big deal. It's okay. Like we just have days like that, right? So what's my tendency can tell me what direction to correct in. There's a term in spiritual circles called discernment, which basically means how do I figure out things that are difficult? But I mean, yeah. to me, that's what it means. Like yeah. we are, we're only trying to discern. We're not trying to discern what to have for dinner, right? We're trying to discern like, you know, is this the right partner in my life? And my opinion is discernment happens in community. Mm. It happens in conversation with other people. So these things that you're talking about here are, they're hard to know because you're right. We are, we are evolved to deceive ourselves, right? <laughs> I mean, there's a fair amount of science out there that shows like there's actual reasons why we, de- why we evolve to deceive ourselves. Because if we don't even know the truth, you can't know the truth about my motivation. So to me, it's, it's about having people that I know and I trust and I can ask the difficult questions of and say, what do you think? You know, and just talk it through. Really, it's done in communion, really, like in community. And yep. that idea of change with support, because I think of, I'm a member of a men's group. If I try to bullshit my men's group, they're like, hell no. <laughs> like, you're not getting away with mediocrity. You're not getting away with not keeping your commitments that you made to the group. You know, there's a certain values that we have agreed upon and certain ways that we've agreed to be approached. You know, that there is a general agreement in the Mm -hmm. eight of us that's like, we give consent ahead of time Yeah, that you can, this is what I actually, I actually, that's the kind of intervention I know I need. And of course, I think we all need, as you said, different types of interventions based on our uh, slippery habit, you know, or that we are too hard on ourselves. It's interesting because essentially what I feel like you're saying is the community is modeling the healing of whatever their adaptive strategy is, which is really interesting, like the self-loathing or the or the mm-hmm. letting themselves yeah. off the hook that the the community and you as an interventionist specifically in those relationships are modeling like what a healing relationship to self would be, which is, gosh, when I think about even changing any behavior, it's so necessary that we're surrounded by other people who are regulated, who are, yeah. Our champions, but also who are like, average you ain't going to cut it anymore. It's really interesting because this is a really, I, I find this to be a fascinating topic and question because this is often talked about in gendered terms. And I want to stay out of any sort of d- debate about that one way or the other. But it's often said that what women want, the reason they get frustrated with their male partners is because they just want to be heard. Mm-hmm. And the man just jumps in and starts offering solutions. We're so good at that. I'm a middle way kind of guy, right? I just tend to orient that way. And there was a really interesting study. I, I, I learned about it in a book called Chatter by Ethan Cross. And it's about our internal self-talk. And I don't remember how they did the study, and but it rang true to me. And what it said was that the most healing interventions with another person balance two things. On one hand, they absolutely allow the person to be heard and understood and accepted for what they're feeling. Uh 
and there was also place to say, and maybe here's another way of thinking about it. Mm. It did both. It didn't just do one or the other, right? Because I've been in groups that are heavily confrontational, right? There's a, maybe a time and a place for that and depending on the person, but there's a, for many, many people, that is a, will, will drive them away very right. quickly. Sour taste, right? yeah. You know, there's some groups that are all about the confrontation. I'm just going to call you out on your shit, man. And then there are other places where it's just like, yeah, I'm, oh man, I can understand why you did that. I mean, your life's been difficult. And I mean, with your childhood, that totally makes sense to me. I totally understand, right? My experience is that somewhere in between those two things is what works for most people. Mm -hmm. is a, but if you don't, and I think this is where men tend to get it wrong. If we don't start with the first, which is I feel heard, I feel understood, I feel seen, and I feel validated. Yeah. Then the other can come. And in your men's group, that 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 first stuff got established somehow. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It got established enough that you're then able to say, I trust you guys enough, and I know that you see me, and I know that you know who I am, that you can d deliver to me what I'm not seeing, you know? So I think that community is finding the right level. And I, you know, I've seen all different groups where those different dynamics are in play. And the ones that to me have felt most successful, certainly most healing for me is one where both is there. There's an absolute like, man, that's difficult. I get it. Wow. And a, I also think that maybe you could have done better there, or you could have done this. Diff what about it? What if you tried this differently? That's beautiful. Or what about if next time, Eric, you know, I know that that's really difficult for you, but instead of just saying, venting to your partner, what if you just took a walk instead and then calmed down and thought like, you know, a little of both. Yeah. That element of trust is really the gateway to trust the advice that's even coming, whether it's yes. lashing you or, or, you know, softly delivered. You're right. It requires the first part, which is whatever you're about to deliver me. I trust you to deliver it. And I, yeah. I entrust you with the permission, you know, because so often yeah. we give people advice that's unsolicited. I mean, they don't want it. Yeah. That was on my report card when I was in grade six that I <laughs> felt the need really? to give unsolicited advice, unsolicited comments. I would like shout them out. Oh, that's funny. Right away, you were like, look, Bob, I think, you know, I'm going to have a podcast one day. So I wouldn't get on the swing with Susie. She's just, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you're going to do better not, not, not hanging out with Susie. She's <laughs> bad life choice. What are you doing? What do you think in all the things you've been through, in all the things you've studied, in all the people you've interacted with and worked with, and all the teachings and all the learnings you've done? What do you think is the one, I know that's a lot of pressure, but like the one thing that you see being a really powerful determinant in not only great relationships, um, but actually a great life? You know, the one that I would go with is recognizing that we don't have to necessarily believe our thoughts. I mean, I think that's pretty foundational. Hmm. Right. Like if I I've never if, heard that as an answer though. If I believe that every thought that comes to my mind is true or right or correct, that's a pretty limiting way to live, right? You know, I have to at least be able to say, huh, is that true? What's another way I could look at that? Is there a different perspective I could take? Because thoughts are just they're a response of our they're a they're what comes from a lifetime of conditioning. Yeah. And depending on what your conditioning has been, your thoughts may be more or less distorted, more or less destructive, more or less painful. And so at least a recognition that just because it pops into my head doesn't mean it's true feels to me pretty foundational. Because once you do that, then you suddenly go, oh, okay, well, I actually have to pay attention to what's going on up here. Yeah, it invites right? presence. I actually have to be aware of what I'm thinking. And I have to say, is that true? How do I know that that's true? Is there a different way to see it? Is there, um, am, I, am I distorting this in some way? Am I telling myself a story that is completely disempowering? I think so much of our lives, our thoughts are, they're making meaning out of what happens. We're meaning making machines. It just happens automatically. You can't not do it. And yet that meaning is very subject to what's going on with 
what's happened to us before, how we feel that morning, how well we slept. I mean, there's so many factors that if I can't call those things into question, then I'm kind of just going to keep doing what I've always done and thinking what I've always thought and, and getting the same results I've always gotten. So, I mean, to me, that one feels pretty fundamental. Um, and it's, it, I think along with that, it also recognizes that idea that like you have a voice in your head that is always talking to you. <laughs> it's so it true. It never shuts up. And so much of what it says is completely inane. <laughs> and yet... That is the reality that we inhabit most of the time. And most of the time we're reacting and responding to that voice. And so recognizing that it's just a voice and that it's not necessarily real or true. It's not to say that some things aren't true and it's not, yeah. to, you know, I mean, I, I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying it, it opens up my internal world for exploration. And I don't, if I think if, if we don't have that, none of the other stuff really works. It's back to your point before. Like if I'm just self-deceiving myself the whole time, like I, I can't really get anywhere. By doing that doesn't mean you will immediately stop self-deceiving yourself, but you got a better chance of it. Well, to even be able to be in that question, is what I'm thinking true, is a space that I've never heard that as an answer. And I love it because Immediate, you spoke earlier about the power of presence, and I think, well, that immediately makes you have to be present to your thought, and then it's not yeah. automated anymore. And then now you're building discernment about what is true and what is not. So you're building a sense of self-trust, authority, and you're actually able to invalidate some of these things that we don't even, as you say, we don't take the time to even assess the quality of this inane yeah like the guy in class when i was yelling the thing it was the voice <laughs> that shouldn't have been spoken right right, right. you know yeah. i wasn't discerning about it's like blah, blah, blah. um which yeah. th that's certainly been true in other times in my life eric i've so enjoyed this conversation uh and all the different avenues it took for us to be able to really deconstruct a lot about human behavior and about how habits are changed i mean in a in an ideal circumstance and i think for you listening there's probably uh so much gold garnered from this no matter what we're trying to change how big it is how small it is i've not thought about all those scales and context and the question of the competing i mean that for for you listening i'm sure that's a confronting one and one that uh is necessary so where can people find more of you? Where can they, you know, on all the socials? And we'll make sure we link it all in the show notes. I mean, the best place is just to go to oneyoufeed.net. I mean, from there, you can find all the podcast episodes. You can find out about programs we're running. You can get on the email list. You can find the links to our Instagram channel. So oneyoufeed.net, that's all spelled out. O-N-E-Y-O-U-F-E-E-D.net. Perfect. Eric, such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mark. 